0: Hey everybody this is brett and i'm christian and you're listening to the gilded films podcast
1: 1938 edition everybody and welcome to the Gilda Films podcast. Which picture was best? As always, it's me, Christian. Hello, I'm excited to be back. It feels like it's been a little bit. I don't think it really has been, but life has been getting in the way. Uh, A lot of us have been super, super busy. I've been back in school so there's a lot of that but we are here we watch these movies we're ready to talk about it it's going to be cool it's going to be exciting we have a special guest host but first I'll say hello to Brett hello as always hello 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 fearless leader so here we go this is a first for the Guild of Films podcast we have an actual fan here like one that we don't actually know beforehand other than knowing them from twitter ladies and gentlemen listeners of all ages please welcome to quote kathy bates in misery our number one fan <laughs> welcome john hello john
2: hello i love that i'm being compared to kathy bates this is a high <laughs> honor
1: well Which- welcome welcome to the show um first of all we just want to say that uh, thank you thank you so much for being on the show It's kind of a, it's amazing because I remember when Brett told me that we had a fan who spoke to him, which would have been you, actually. And then he followed you, you followed him, et cetera, et cetera. I followed you. And now we're just like all good friends on Twitter and we're meeting for the first time. So, yeah, hello.
2: This is exciting. Yeah. I I listen to you guys um, like on my walks every day. I do a noon walk. And so I've listened to um, every episode. Uh, And I'm excited to be on. This is my first podcast ever, in fact.
1: Awesome. Um, so Love tell it. us a little bit about yourself, because I know you're a fan of movies and also politics.
2: I am. I am. So I um, I studied film history. That was my major in college and uh, focusing on 1960s cinema. So uh, my senior honors thesis was on Lawrence of Arabia and uh, uh and then i run a blog called the Mini rantings of john which is focused on classic cinema as well as some elections analysis uh we do a lot of focus on oscar races and um classic stars from the 1930s and 40s and so this is yeah this is right up my alley discussing 1938
0: today hmm. yeah yeah i we've ventured into the 60s three times and that is also, quickly becoming one of my just favorite decades uh, for cinema, both U.S. and abroad. Um, especially it's, that it's, decade.
2: So it's fun to sort of watch how sort of the classic Hollywood stars s- struggle to stay relevant as you have this whole new generation. It was really the first time since the sound era that that had happened all at once. And I, yeah, it's it's my favorite era.
0: That's awesome. I love it. Perfect. Well, yeah, really excited to be back, um, diving back into the 30s here, as Christian said. And so we are discussing the 11th Academy Awards today, um, Academy Awards of 1938. They did take place in February 23rd of 1939. And so to briefly go over some of the big winners that night, Best Picture went to You Can't Take It With You, which was the second film um, of Frank Capra's to win Best Picture. Um, we are we talked about the first. Um, oh my gosh, it happened one night, uh 1934. I almost blanked there. How
1: dare you! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: <laughs>
0: um, but for Frank Kepper himself, really big year for him. He won best director for the third time. First to do it three times. Now the only one who is ahead of him is John Ford with four. Uh, and he is tied with uh William Wyler in second place. They both have three, and so nobody else has achieved that. Um best actress that year went to Betty Davis, uh, for the second time, her second of two Oscar wins in her career on her third nomination. She would have many more after that point. Um, same can be said for Spencer Tracy who also won his second Oscar on his third nomination. This was actually the second consecutive win in the category. He won for captain's courageous the year before. Um, Best Supporting Actress, this was the first year, and I think one of only like two years to this today, in which um, one of the acting winners was a first-time winner and the others had won before. And so Faye Bainter was the newcomer here. Uh, She also won for Jezebel, like Betty Davis. And she was also the first actress in Academy history to earn two acting nominations in the same year. Um, We've talked about a few examples before most notably Julianne Moore in 2002. Um, But yeah, it all kind of started there. And then last but not least, Best Supporting Actor went to Walter Brennan, also his second. Um, That was actually his second of three Oscar wins, all for Supporting Actor. So popular one with the Academy there. Uh, The film with the most wins of the night was The Adventures of Robin Hood. It won three Oscars on actually only four nominations. Uh, but the most nominations went to the best picture winner. You can't take it with you. And so some other kind of fun facts from the ceremony are that George Bernard Shaw actually became the first person to win an Oscar and a Nobel prize for literature. He had won the Nobel prize in like the 1920s. Um, Bob Dylan actually joined him when he won his Nobel prize in 2016, which I recall being very controversial. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um Radio coverage for this ceremony was actually banned. I, I didn't see why, but they had to like watch out, have security there. They didn't want radio coverage there. Um, but another big factor is that Grand Illusion was the first film primarily not in the English language to be nominated for best picture. And so all this way took 92 years. We finally got a film primarily in language, not English and Parasite to win best picture. It all kind of goes back to here at the 11th ceremony. And John, actually, something that you mentioned to us was that this was actually Bob Hope's first appearance at an Oscar ceremony. Um, you kind of had a fun point about that if you want to expand on that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so it was Bob Hope's. He, he was presenting the short subjects. Uh, and when he presented, he, he took the advantage of the fact that he got to make some jokes. And uh, the, back in the ceremonies, in the early years, they would have all the Oscars on a table. And he made a joke about how it was, it looked like Betty Davis's garage sale. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. One other fact about you, you mentioned those three, there are three former winners. Uh, The only other year that that happened in 94, the first timer in that year was Martin Lando and he was the oldest of the nominees. And this year, Faye Bainter was the oldest of the nominees or oldest of the four winners. So both times it was the oldest.
0: That's really fascinating. Yeah. And I, I can't believe that that's only, I don't know, I guess it's kind of very specific, but only had that happen twice. So that's really interesting as well. Yeah. um, Yeah. Very interesting. You know, one of those early ceremonies kind of right before um, this shift, you know, 1939 being largely considered by many to be one of the greatest film years ever. And so coming kind of right before that time. Um, Yeah. We actually have 10 nominees this year as it was so often in those early years of the Academy. And so as always, we will go through them one by one and share our thoughts. Christian. I believe you have our first film today. Would you like to go ahead and take us away with that one?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, what is it? Okay. Here we go. <clears throat> this is the Adventures of Robin Hood. That's it. That's that's the intro. No, so <laughs> this ain't this ain't the Disney movie, kids. Um, this is the 1938 uh, beautiful Technicolor adventure film starring Errol Flynn, Olivia De Havilland, uh, Claude Rains. Uh, who else is in this? Basil Rath wrath yeah all good stuff basic plot here Uh, i'm not going to ramble as much with the plot this time around because it's there's a lot to take in with this film but basically when prince john and the norman lords begin oppressing the saxon masses in king richard's absence a saxon lord robin hood fights back as the outlaw leader of a rebel guerrilla army so uh, i've always said to myself when i watch this movie that i should probably like it a lot more than i do I didn't grow up with it, like uh, actually Maddie, our friend to the show has grown up with this movie. She's the one who introduced it to me years and years and years ago. But I always remember seeing this on like TCM Sunday in the summer when they would have like a kid series. I don't know if either of you know what I'm talking about, but they used to do that in the summers on Sundays. And it'd be primarily focused at kids where they have a lot of these swashbuckling, I love that'd be pirates, but a lot of these epic type movies and they would always show Robin Hood and I finally watched this like a few years ago and it's fine. Um, I don't know. I'm not like the biggest fan of it. Like I said, it's beautiful to look at. I really love the art direction. And I really love that they put this in color because if this wasn't black and white, it, it would not do nothing for me. Okay. Yeah. Um, Olivia de Havilland's really good in this. Claude Rains and Basil Rathbone are like the tops for me. They're like very much... Uh, incredibleness as Errol Flynn as Robin Hood. Um, I just want to give, who is it? Eugene Pallet. he as Friar Tuck. Also love him, love his voice. I don't know, little gravel voice there. But yeah, um, it's a good movie. It's not one of my favorites. I know that both of you have different opinions than me, which is totally cool, but it is a fun adventure film. And I would definitely introduce this to a kid who, probably is like oh you know old movies are boring but it's like it's fun it's in color like I said yeah I don't know it's it's not my thing but I appreciate it also oh directed by Michael Curtis and William Mm. Keeley sorry okay go ahead
0: yeah so I I actually have to say that the first time I watched this, which was four years ago, I would have pretty much agreed with everything you just said. Cause I first watched this in 2017 as part of that, um, that thing that was running around letterbox, like the film school dropouts weekly challenge rest in peace. Um, But at the time, you know, I, I really, I liked the movie. Um, I, I don't know kind of what I was expecting, but for me, it just didn't like really stand out for, for some reason or another. But as I watch it now, I'm like struggling to like find where I was in that mode back then because I really enjoyed every bit of this movie. Um, It's still it's it's not like a five star movie or anything like that. You know, it's not like one of my favorites. But as far as like you said, a really early classical Hollywood cinema action adventure, Technicolor venture, it's so much fun. Um, and, and that's not at, at the expense of the filmmaking or the the quality whatsoever either. I really like, um, obviously the, the colors, this is the only nominee we had this year that was in Technicolor and it's so often, often considered one of those really influential early Technicolor movies. And I think it's really easy to see why, um, I, agree agree with the art direction, the costumes, um, Robin, his is almost like kind of funny. He's got some bling bling on his going. But uh, overall, I I really love the costumes throughout. And Claude Rains just continues to be showing up for me as just the, the quintessential supporting actor in really this era of cinema. I mean, you've got... Obviously Casablanca that, that's one of my favorite supporting performances of all time. He's great and notorious. He's great. in Mr. Smith goes to Washington and that continues here. He is just really like, and, and different. This is not a Claude Rains I've seen before. He really just kind of dives into this Prince John role, which in some ways is almost a bit humorous, um, you know, and just kind of how outlandish he is at times, but he's great. Um, I, I enjoy Eugene Pallett as, as Friar Tuck. I think he's a lot of fun as well. And the Merry Men. I, I mean, once the, the group comes together and you know they're all kind of joining up and Robin, um, you know, Errol Flynn has s- just such undeniable charisma that he's recruiting these folks and he's like dueling them to see what they've got. And it's just, it's fun. It's, I completely agree with what you said, Christian. If you're going to introduce a kid to classical Hollywood cinema, I don't think you can have a better starting point than this film. Um, But I think it's something that adults can enjoy thoroughly as well um, as I do. And so um, I'd be remiss to go without naming, you know, Olivia de Havilland. She's just an all timer, obviously, as well. Um, Doing her thing amongst all these men in the movie. She definitely stands out in her own way. Um, Yeah, a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I watched it with... um, my girlfriend who, who doesn't watch a whole lot of classical cinema and she really enjoyed it too. And so
2: it's a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm probably to the, the, the left of both of you on this because I love Adventures of Robin Hood. This is one that just, I adore this movie. I saw it for the first time, I think about three, four years ago. So similar to you, Brett. Um, and I, this is my favorite kind of film escapism. Uh, I, it's sort of, a, you know, we, there are a lot of deep challenging movies nominated this year. This is not one of those films, but it is, it's just this sort of effervescent cotton candy of a film. Uh, I love the color in the, the movie. Uh, it's, it's beautiful, the, the technicolor, uh, literally beautiful gowns uh, with, when it comes to Olivia de Havilland. Uh, Errol Flynn I I know he's a bit problematic in real life but in this he's so dashing he's transformed It's, it's my favorite of all of his movies. But as you, you both said, the cast is terrific. Uh, Olivia de Havilland is great. I love Claude Reigns. He's so much fun when he plays a villain. I like him better when he plays a villain. And ba- Basil Rathbone is just so dastardly. It's, it's amazing. And I think for me, the cinematography really stands out about this movie, um, not just because the color is so beautiful, but also some of the shots throughout the film, you, they really move the camera around, especially when you're looking at the scenes of Camp, Prince John's uh, court and getting to see the entire room or how my favorites, one of my favorite little shots in the scene is when they're doing a sword fight and you see them in silhouette before you actually see them fighting. And yes. that's towards the end. And I love that it's it's really playing with that. And the score is magnificent. Uh, just a terrific,
1: the, that Oscar was 100% deserved. Right, that's one thing I forgot to bring up was the score to this thing. And mm-hmm. we do personal awards. I mean, we only do our limited ones, but in my full, Full on personal ones, it wins best score for me. Same, it's an effective yeah. score too. It just like guides it along, you know.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It works well with what's going on in the movie, and yeah, I, I keep thinking about too, like the um, the way it's shot, like you mentioned, John, and the I, I would have liked to observe how they put some of these kind of more action sequences together. Um, there's obviously there's a lot of horse riding in this film. They've got some it's a film that feels kind of contained. You don't have any like huge ginormous battles, like a, a game of throne style or anything like that, but it still feels pretty grand and Epic, you know, in scope when they do come about. And I think it's, it's really impressive um, kind of the stunts. And I, I love when they're dueling kind of on the stairs, leading down and falling down and whatnot. It's like, gosh, I had, you know, that's kind of cool that they were doing this in 1938. So
1: it feels like one of those things like when you see a like a movie made today like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where they're making an old movie and you see it's like all grand and spectacle. Mm. That's what this is. This is the grand spectacle movie in Technicolor.
2: I mean, they've been talking about getting a best stunt work Oscar for decades. How did it not just happen at this movie when Errol right. Flynn like ju- runs and jumps onto a horse?
0: Yeah, I don't get it.
1: I really don't get it. Um... Plus, did a bunch of people also get hurt with the swords, like the actual swords? Right, isn't that that happened in real life. They were actually yeah.
2: like, they got paid extra if they were willing to take an arrow. <laughs> Interesting. What's a union?
0: <laughs> but no, I, I agree with another point you made, John, in that um, it, it's not like the other nominees, you know, and it is, and I didn't completely realize as I was watching, but that's I think another reason why it holds up so well is as you're watching something there's, it really kind of stands out as a breath of fresh air. Um, and I've always kind of attributed that to the, the color, but you know, the content as well, and kind of being a little bit more lighthearted and, and enjoyable definitely helps it a lot. Christian, do you want to go over what this one and your, your reference here?
1: Yes. So this one, three Oscars, it won for art direction, I don't think there was a... There was not a split yet, right? For color and black and white.
2: I... The next year with Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the next year. All right,
1: so yeah. So it just went straight up art direction. And film editing and original score, and it was nominated for Best Picture. So, yo, it almost won, basically. And yes, I do have a Golden Girls reference because I've been neglecting doing (laughs) that because I haven't been thinking about it, and now I've thought about it, and there is one. So, Benito the Hood... And his band of merry thugs. Oh my god. Stole from the rich and gave to himself. That's it.
0: Wow, of course. This seems like a year that would have a collection of Golden Girls references. I know we've got at least one more. Oh, it does. A couple more coming up here. So <laughs> always love those. Um, yeah, our first film is definitely a grand, kind of the big technical achievements of the year for sure. Um, I think one that's in a lot of ways really held up over time. Any final thoughts that any of us have on the adventures of Robin Hood?
2: Can I share one really weird fact about this movie? Go for it. Uh, I love them. So the horse that Olivia de Havilland is riding throughout this, it's this beautiful, beautiful horse. It actually is one of the biggest stars in the movie because... It was, I'm not sure if you guys read this, but Roy Rogers saw this horse in the movie. And so the, that horse is actually Trigger. What? So, yes.
0: Oh my gosh. I, I-, I did not know that. Well, and it's funny you bring that up because I was like, I was in a mood for Westerns one day and I was trying to find some Westerns from this year. And I watched one with Roy Rogers called like Under Western Stars. Um, I don't recommend that movie but uh <laughs> uh it's really interesting the, the ties there how that came about so
2: isn't that like one of isn't it like randomly nominated for best song or something like that probably there are a lot of songs in it none of them that i found
0: uh particularly memorable but it's only like an hour and five minutes long but it yeah yeah uh nominated for one oscar for the song dust so C- could not recall title. yeah Yeah, very nice. Um, Perfect. So for our next film, John, you've actually got this one. So go ahead and take us away here.
2: Yeah. So our next film is Alexander's Ragtime Band from 20th Century Fox. Um, It's directed by Henry King. And it's about a young man named Alexander, who in the film is played by Tyrone Power, who joins a ragtime band, much to the chagrin of his proper moneyed family. And the band lucks into a gig at a bar but there's a catch. They have to perform with a singer named Stella Kirby, who in the film is played by Alice Faye, who is also trying to land her big break. The combo of the two are dynamite, and they start to work their way up through the nightclub circuit, but a love triangle springs up between Stella, Alexander, and the band's pianist, Charlie, who in the movie is played by Don Amici. When Stella gets her big break, but the band doesn't, Alexander lashes out in jealousy, causing a rift between Stella and Alexander, one that takes a bit of a backseat to World War I when Alexander is drafted into the army. And when he comes back, the dynamics of the love triangle have shifted a bit. I won't give away too much. Uh, We don't wanna get into spoiler territory, but the movie definitely tries to keep you guessing at least up until the halfway point as to where Stella's heart is going to land before showing their cards uh, about 30 minutes from the finale. I will also, no spoilers, but I think she picked the wrong guy. Uh, <laughs> the film is uh, basically the equivalent of a jukebox musical uh, using sort of modern parlance, but one that features a lot of standards by Irving Berlin and was one of a string of six musicals that Don Amici and Alice Faye made uh, in, for Fox in the late 30s and early 40s. I love Alice Faye. I know she's not particularly famous now, but she's one of my favorite actors of that era. So I have a soft spot for this movie. This was my first time seeing it, but I'd seen a lot of Alice Faye. And uh, even if it has some faults, the plot is a little thin. Uh, I really liked this movie and I loved Alice Faye in it. I also loved that they cast actors who can actually sing. Alice Faye is a great singer. Ethel Merman is an actor, uh, is has a small part in it. And obviously Ethel Merman can sing. And you get to hear two singers really at the top of their game. Uh, just in general, I know that this is not an MGM movie this there's not a lot of great choreography this is not an MGM musical but I like Fox musicals and Alice Faye I love
1: yeah uh, oh, isn't Alice Faye the one in The Shape of Water that they reference I think so yeah and okay, that's what I thought so I'm not too familiar with her other than that and now this but I did like this I mean I didn't I didn't super super love it and again, I, it's not like the MGM-type spectacle that you would think, Busby, Berkeley and all that. Um, but no, it was good. I really liked Ethel Merman in this, though. But that's just me being a super big Ethel Merman fan, as you too well know. Because mm-hmm. when I said hello today, I started out with Ethel Merman's disco album of her singing Alexander's Ragtime Band. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a good movie. It's uh, again, not one of my favorites. It dragged for me a little bit. And I did mostly just like the musical numbers. The best one though is with um, Jack Haley, who is the tin man in our next year, 1939 in the wizard of Oz, but he has a great performance there. And I forgive me. I forgot the song. Let me look it up. Uh, Somebody say the song if they know it can't remember yeah i couldn't tell you okay but it's something it's 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 good it's set during world war one this particular song and it just the camera just backs out and to reveal that it is a stage it's not like he's singing in whatever but yeah it's uh it's good it's fine it's not like the best thing ever but i i had good fun with it and seeing ethel merman this early in her career (laughs) i'm sorry this isn't the ethel merman movie but to me it was the ethel merman movie okay (laughs) I love the woman. And Tyrone Power is good too. He's super young and like all these movies I've ever seen in him. He doesn't seem to age for me. Does he age? <laughs> I don't know. He doesn't seem to age. I don't know. I don't even know Brett knows who this is before this movie.
0: I know who Tyrone Power is. But yeah, no, I, I'm not that familiar with him, I will admit. So, but wow. that's fair. i I also. I have to say I wasn't very familiar with Alice Faye either um, and I didn't even catch that um, Shape of Water reference I have to admit so but I I mean to start there I agree I think Alice Faye was probably the strongest point of the movie for me personally um, I think her performance kind of struck stuck out and kind of her dilemma that she faces um, I hadn't thought about it I, I might have to agree with you John I, she I think she might have picked the wrong guy because I also found Donna Michi really charming in this too um, at times. So, but I think, you know, when I watched this, this is actually the first one I watched and I, I, my immediate reaction was like, I could see this being one that I enjoy when I watch it, but ultimately doesn't really linger with me. It is, is even a little bit forgettable at times. And I think just thinking, you know, a couple weeks after the fact, that's probably going to be the case. Um, I do enjoy it for sure. Cause I, I do, like a musical but kind of like you said Christian it's not not exactly the grand ones that we might come to expect but it's really one of those early examples I do always like movies like this because I think they kind of push what films could do with sound at this time knowing that you know we're, we're only about 10 years removed from um, 11 years from the first you know acclaimed sound film um, with the jazz singer and so i thinking about what it does there and, and being a musical film and employing that music and, and employing good music. I think it does stand out for that reason. Um, the, the romance, like the love triangle is kind of the part of the plot that sticks out to me, even though I think it's kind of, you know, retired average. Um, the part that I wish I understood and got a little more is like how it traces music during this time frame, because as I read on the film, it's like part of what they're doing here is looking at kind of the rise of swing and jazz and what that looks like, and including some very popular events that occurred during that time in the narrative. And so, I didn't that didn't come through as strongly for me, though I do find that interesting. And obviously, that's there's always going to be something there because the film is wholly white. Um, and and talking about jazz and whatnot. And so that, that's always going to be a factor as well. Um, one that we we still see today. So, um, yeah, overall, I I think it's one that as I'm watching, I enjoy it. I can get into it. Um, as it ends, it's like, it's a good one. I enjoyed it. And then I kind of move on. So that's what I'm left
2: with. And like La La Land, which is also a film that struggled with with trying to navigate the world of jazz, it did. It was a best picture frontrunner that didn't win. Yeah, exact. Interesting. Yeah, good comparison. So, uh, Christian, was the song you were talking about? Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. That's the one. Yes. Nice. So I Got have it. a. Can I share a weird story about this? This absolutely. is absolutely. So my dad, um, growing up, he would sing my brother and I. Like he would make up songs, and one of them, when we, he would wake us up, was how oh how I uh, um, how I hate to get up in the morning, and he would sing that to us. And I, this movie, like three weeks ago, I real- my entire world was shattered when I found out my dad is Irving Berlin, apparently, um, because uh, I didn't realize this was not one of the songs he made up. Um, and I, I, I texted him And I was like did you know you didn't make this up And he said yeah it's from a movie <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: amazing I love it so this, this particular movie right
2: Yes this particular movie yes oh. I, Wow yeah.
0: Those connections I love it um, John do you want to go over What this won and what it was Additionally nominated for
2: Yes so um, it won one Oscar For best music scoring um, and it was nominated for five additional uh, nominations. It was nominated, obviously, for best picture, as well as best original story, art direction, film editing, and the original song "Now It Can Be Told," which I think is the only orig- one of the only original songs to this, because a lot of it was um, already pre-existing music. Right. I figured that was the case. Did you? Did you? Can I, Did you guys like the John Carradine cameo at the end of this movie? As I the did. Top driver. I was-
1: I was going to bring it up. Yeah. To say that I did like the whole scene with the taxi and just, it's like, he knows who she is, but we don't, you know, we don't know who, we don't know that he knows who she is. And mm-hmm. it was nice.
2: It was nice. So it felt yeah. a little, so I always think of him as Dracula. And so I was like thinking like Alice Faye, run away. You're, this is about. to be <laughs> <complete the movie." laughs> No. Yeah. I'm glad
0: you brought that up. Cause I had forgotten about that, but that is kind of a, a charming bit of the movie. Um, towards the end there that yeah I enjoyed it as well perfect um any further thoughts on Alexander's ragtime band before we go on to our next film
1: Ethel Merman listen to her sing it <laughs> amazing honestly I was mad that she did not sing it in this movie so.
0: <laughs> all right well our next film is another one that did pretty well um both on Nominations day and on Oscar night, and that is *Boys Town*. And so, this is directed by Norman Turog. Turo- Turo- I, I know I just completely butchered that name, um, but it stars Spencer Tracy in his Oscar-winning lead role. Here, he plays Father Flanagan, who was an actual, you know, real-life figure in Nebraska, who. Um in the beginning of the film he encounters this prisoner on death row and this prisoner basically says if I had just had one person to help me out you know one friend along the way I wouldn't be here today and so uh father flanagan takes this and he's like oh I can do something with this and he creates this boys home essentially in nebraska and so he has to work with like his financier to get all the, the funds built up to get it up and going And it pretty much booms from the get go. He has to move to a bigger space. He provides a home for basically all these boys from the streets and they kind of live there. They form their own kind of democracy and they have elections every six months for like their, their leader, their president. And father Flannan kind of watches over the whole thing and provides for them and tries to kind of set them on the right path going forward. Um, Things do become complicated once a, troublemaker named whitey marsh comes along he is of course played by mickey rooney who uh, of course mickey rooney is playing this role uh, <laughs> christian just gave a look um and that kind of becomes father flanagan's biggest challenge um and it really threatens not just the group as a whole but um the survival of boystown and so the whitey marsh stuff i was looking at that's that aspect of his a little bit more fictionalized but um the boy's town you know it does exist it was a, a big thing and um I think father flanagan I I want to say he's either been canonized or that it's been discussed um canonizing him so um I'm not sure totally where that, that process is but um I actually I enjoyed this more than I expected to um you know I, I saw I really like Spencer Tracy Mickey Rooney you know, here and there. Um, but I, I did kind of, I was kind of fascinated to kind of see all the boys and the characters kind of come together. And I really did. I have to say, I appreciated Spencer Tracy's performance because it was in a way very subtle, um, but commanding in ways. And he did really come across as this really kind of fatherly authority figure that I thought was effective. Um, I think things go a little bit by the wayside when, when Rooney comes in and I will say I did like Rooney's performance for most of his scream time, the last 20 minutes. So it's just too much. It is just too much. Like the last 20, 15 minutes, he spends the entire time like crying his eyes out and just this like totally like over the top fashion. Granted, you know, I get it was 1938, but at one point I was just like, this guy needs to really just shut it because he's annoying me right now. Um, So I I actually think they're co-leads in the film. I think that, you know, for the most part, Tracy kind of commands most of the first half and Rooney is kind of the center point of the second half for the most part. And then they kind of come together in the end. Um, But, you know, I, I, I did enjoy it quite a bit more than I expected, but I do have, you know, I do think that it kind of, settles in some way i I think the kind of buildup is a lot bigger than the payoff that comes um and so it it kind of eases in after that and so but i did like spencer tracy i I do like his kind of understated performance here so
1: well as we say here on the gilda films podcast it isn't a mickey rooney movie until you see blackface yep and indeed there is a oh my god there is a scene of blackface in this just pre-warning to anybody who sees Mm -hmm. it but um i've seen this uh, i think twice beforehand first time i really liked it second time it was meh this time i really did like it i really warmed up to it a lot more and i think it was because it is it feels almost like two different stories uh like brett said the first half is the spencer tracy half the second half is mickey rooney and then in the end they all come together I did like Spencer Tracy in this a lot more than I have ever before, I guess, in this film. It is a good movie. It reminded me of, I don't know, I'm surprised we'd never watched this in school because I did 13 years of Catholic school <laughs> and it was only until a few years ago when I first saw this, I had ever heard this story or whatnot, but it is, uh, I don't know, it's a, really good, it's a really good film, I think. I really like it, it's very heartwarming, it's a touching film. There's a sequel to it also, which is on the DVD that I rented. And I still have it because I actually want to see it. And both of them are in it. But to go to what Brett was saying, in 2019, I guess Father Flanagan had some uh, advancement with his beatification slash sainthood. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I would actually be super interested in going to see wherever he is buried up in Nebraska because I'm in Kansas, so it's just like a state above me. But yeah, I really do like Boys Town. I I thought it was a good film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm landing on the other side
2: of this one a little no. bit. I thought it was. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I'm apparently the contrarian. This it's joyful. <laughs> I I have yeah. a Mickey Rooney allergy, and I had not taken a Claritin beforehand, and so is <laughs> diagnosed, and so that's gonna be my excuse. Um, Mickey no. Rooney, not a fan to this podcast. That's for sure. It's just yeah. He's just. Too much, <laughs> too much. Um, I feel like he was still in Andy Hardy mode rather than playing the character for me. I, I, I it, it was okay for me uh, overall. It's nice. I, I get it's a pleasant movie, but it's not a movie that I would. I, this is my first time through, and I don't. It's not one that I would necessarily revisit, revisit too much. Um, overall I, I I thought Mickey Rooney especially towards the back half of the film just got a little bit too outlandish similar I think Brett you said that uh, overall Spencer Tracy for me was fine Spencer Tracy my opinion of him is that he's always better in comedies than in dramas and so uh, I, I, w- I like him better in the other movie we're going to be talking about than this because he plays a much more comedic role but for me this one sort of landed in the middle it's not something that's going to stick with me it's not a bad movie it's just Okay.
0: No, yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. And I really do think like, because like I said, like I, I do enjoy the movie, but at the end of the day, it's still just a three-star movie um, overall. So it's it's like a mild like, and I think it, it is, it is because of Mickey Rooney and not just him, but because of his character. And I just, I don't like that the focus shifts to him so much because I really would like to see, the process of Boys Town and the democratic nature of it and and what goes on there. But that's so also spearheaded by Rooney's involvement. And I get it, the film has to create conflict and it has to find some way to draw that conclusion. But I, I that's where the film just kind of stumbles for me. Cause leading up to that, I'm like totally interested in what's going on here.
1: It it also has to add Mickey Rooney because he is such a box office appeal too. Yeah. And, you know, he's probably like, he's already 50 years old when this movie is made. I mean, <laughs> tiny little man. He's, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I will say, I I think we've discussed three Mickey Rooney movies on the. It's, it, let's just say it. We haven't been we haven't been fans. So um, I definitely understand your allergy to him
2: there, John. <laughs> It was, um, the weird thing about this movie because they made Boys Town, I was reading about this earlier today, but they made Boys Town look so well run that they stopped having donations to it. People stopped donating it because they thought it was so well run. And so they literally had to be like, all right, so, you know, just keep donating. Um, Yeah. Do you know this this story about Spencer Tracy's Oscar with this?
1: Yes. Do do you want to share it, Christian? Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. So when he won, evidently they then said, well, he's going to donate this to Boys Town. And he's like, uh, what? Okay, (laughs) fine. But you guys have to give me a replacement Oscar to which then he did get the replacement Oscar, but on it, it said to Dick Tracy, not Spencer Tracy. No. Yeah. (laughs) To follow up with that story though, because I didn't really read after that. So is, like if you go to the actual place where Boystown is, is the Oscar there?
2: They did. They get gave him an Oscar. I've never been to Boystown. I'm uh, I'm uh, in Minnesota, so I'm in the uh, I'd have to head to Nebraska in the other direction. But I've ne- I've always wanted to go to see it because I right there's only so many ways you can see an Oscar in in in, in the wild. In the wild.
0: <laughs> I yeah. I I know we we keep mentioning Nebraska. Um, I believe Omaha is is the city. Correct kind of. I believe where this is all that.
1: Oh my There's God, an Oscar. Oh my. for the visual, for the visual people out there, we are actually seeing right now. And I'm going to take a picture from my Snapchat friends. John is holding an Academy Award. Please tell us the story behind this, because when you told me, I really didn't understand.
2: But no, it's not a real Oscar for the record. <laughs> I bought it off of Amazon and uh like they had like for like two seconds they had a very, very realistic Oscar. And so yes, it, it does look like whenever you buy these at like Universal, it, it doesn't look quite this realistic.
0: Yeah, I actually did buy one at Universal and it's like half the size, very light. Uh definitely plastic. I'm coming,
1: and... to, I'm coming to Minnesota. <laughs> I'm stealing it. (laughs) No,
2: do not steal my Oscar. It's not an option (laughs) to buy anymore. (sighs)
0: Oh. Amazing. Um, this did get two wins. So it did pretty well that night. Um, Spitzer Trace, like we said, won Best Actor. It also won for Best Original Story. Uh, three additional nominations, of course, best picture, best director, and for uh, best screenplay. Um Christian, I know you have another Golden Girls reference for this one. So let's hear that.
1: I, I don't it does nothing to do to relate to the movie, but it relates to Boys Town. So actually, this comes from the episode Room 7, which was the first ever Golden Girls episode that I watched in my life. So thank you to that. But uh, Bland says that they're tearing down something very important. And Dorothy says, oh, God, they're tearing down Boys Town. <laughs> gosh uh, Wow
0: amazing any further thoughts on Boys Town before we move on to our next film
1: I just want to say to John you are right that Spencer Tracy is much better in comedies it's true I don't know why that didn't do more of them other than like with Hepburn right because even with the Hepburn stuff the Hepburn stuff is better when they are funny when they're not so damn serious all the time yep Mm -hmm.
0: All right, so our next film here is one- Our next film is The Laugh Riot
1: of the Century.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Quite. Speaking of comedies, um, our next film is The Citadel. And so this film stars Robert Donat, who is actually one that we talked about in 1939. He won Best Actor a Year Later for Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, We weren't too enthusiastic about that one either. Uh, But here he plays a young doctor in England who is just setting out on his career. He's just got whatever they had, whatever degrees they had, you know, for doctors back then and all their training and whatnot kind of starts out in rural areas. He really works a lot with like um, coal miners and he's studying like uh, tuberculosis and diseases that come from all the dust and whatnot. And it actually creates kind of a rift in the community. It was it was fascinating to watch this movie in 2021 because you have basically all these people that are like, no, this disease, isn't it real? You're lying to us. And he's like, no, but I'm the scientist and you're going to get this and you're all going to die. And they're like, no. And so it was strangely relevant in ways that I did not expect. Um, but from there, he, he meets um, Christine, who's played by Rosalind Russell and they get married and he goes, they go to London eventually. And he actually takes up a private practice there. Um, this is where I think, granted, this is quite a ways into the film, but I think this is where the film really starts getting to its main point, uh, which has a lot to deal with like medical ethics. And so he is a doctor who it's not like your doctor today, where whatever you do, you're going to make a lot of money. He, they are pretty down on their luck, um, not making much with his private practice and what he's doing. And he sees basically this opportunity to get connected with these rich people in the city. And basically, make them believe that they have these conditions, and you know, consistently lie about the severity of what they're dealing with because they can pay him out the wazoo, and it's like nothing for for them. So, his character goes through a really sudden change because of that, um, and kind of gets swooped up into that world as a result of a, another doctor he meets along the way, um, and so it kind of leads to some rifts between him and with. Christine and kind of this seeking out, you know, whether is he going to continue doing this and live this new life, or is he going to take the more ethical path? And so, yeah, that's the best way I can think of to describe the movie, because like I said, I, I felt like this one took a while to get to the, the point it's wanting to deliver here. And I do think you know, medical ethics is a really interesting topic. And I think the film does approach it in some interesting ways once it gets there. And I think that's kind of the strength of the movie. But aside from that, it's uh it's kind of a snoozer. Um, I it's it's not very exciting at, at any point. I'm I wasn't very struck by any of the performances, really. And I really like Russell as an actress, but I just don't think she's given a whole lot here beyond kind of the stereotypical um you know, stay at home wife role. And so that, that doesn't create much for her to do with, I guess the one that that does do a little bit for me, maybe is Ralph Richardson, he kind of shows up at the end and has some interesting stuff going on with him. Um, He plays uh, an old friend of the doctor in the movie. And so there's some interesting stuff that happens there, but you know, between that, I, 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 Christian and I actually had discussions about what is the Citadel? What, it, what is that referring to in this movie and what it's getting at? And sometimes it's kind of hard to pin down. You know, is this referring to this high life that he finds himself in? Is it referring to the city of London itself and the what it, its temptations? It's kind of hard to pin down. I, I just don't think our lead character is interesting enough to carry the film when that's basically the whole focus is this character study. Um, I don't think it does anything visually interesting either, except for one scene where he's kind of walking around and it kind of does some like superimpositions as he's like walking through the streets after a a really traumatizing event and kind of thinking things over. That's the one part where like, okay, it's kind of trying to do some interesting stuff here, but overall, this is to me, one of the weaker efforts from this lineup. Um, and we'll, we'll go through our ranking. So we'll see where it lands for each of us, of course, but definitely not one of those that I would recommend
1: from this group. Um, not, I'm not gonna lie I, I did watch the film I had no idea any of that happened in the second half of this movie <laughs> So that's how much out of this I was From watching this The first half, fine Everybody's like, oh, I have tuberculosis No, I don't I just work in the mines And like I was telling Toby when we were watching this says, Every British or UK movie of this time Take place in the damn mines Now, I don't know what that even means, but recently seeing how green was my valley. Yeah. Thank you. Um, And yeah, I don't know what the hell the Citadel meant. Rosalind Russell says it at one point. She's like, think of the Citadel. And I'm like, oh, there it is. There it is. (laughs) Full credits. We're done here. First of all, I thought a Citadel was an aqueduct. So (laughs) you know what? I don't. This movie's it's here. It's a movie. I don't really care about it. I'll never see it again Oscar completionist obviously for this podcast I had to watch it I mean it even started with it's a Warner archives DVD from way back when and it starts with now can you even own movies you never thought were possible to own to which again Toby was like well who wants to own the Citadel and if only I would have listened to him because for the next two hours I'm questioning that of why would anybody want to own this or why would anyone watch this I, I don't give it like a one star. I give it a two star because again, the mm-hmm. first half that I actually did focus and pay attention to, it's fine. It's interesting. The scene where he has to go down into the mines to save a guy, pretty cool, pretty neat. After that, when he leaves and goes to London, Meh, it's fine.
2: Yeah, I and will say I for heard...
1: and Rex Harrison shows up, and I'm like, you're gonna start yeah. singing or something? What's going on?
0: I forgot to mention just real quick. This was directed by King Vidor, so very big director at that time who we talked about with um the crowd and so Ooh. which we really liked so a little
1: bit different here mm. yeah and also i'm trying to watch a lot of Roswell. the, it's not the, the crowd. Oh. <laughs> no. but yeah that's uh that's my thoughts it's the citadel
2: yeah i i was not feeling this one either i really wanted to too because like brett what you, what you said really is right it is a resonant movie it's a weirdly modern film in the sense of its messaging i mean it's about how wealthy people get better health care which is certainly a message that 2021 uh that's still unfortunately true uh but it the, the message itself is uh really the only thing it has going for it i i I really struggle with the Oscars when it comes to both Robert donut and Rosalind Russell. It feels like they're both good actors. They both were in good movies, but the Oscar Oscar always picks like the worst movies from them. Like where was the 39 steps? Where was the women? Why are those nominations not happening? And so uh, it's just shocking to me that he gets, this is the film that it was sort of kicked off and, god help him how he managed to use this to springboard into beating jimmy stewart the next year Mm. um yeah i I don't get it so this is it's fine it's like i want to like it because the script is decent and the story behind it is decent this is that rare moment where like the original story category at the oscars feels like it would have been appropriate because the screenplay might be good but the premise is good but overall this is a movie that in a month from now i am going to have forgotten i saw
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And Chris, some of you said resonated with me because like you liked more the early stuff. And and now I think about it, like I think I did too, but it's just the issue, it's so disconnected from what happens after that. Like it's like the point of the first bit just feels so different from what it leads to in the second bit that like even though it's the best part, it's like I leave thinking about all the 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 bad stuff in in the second half. So it would have been better
2: if Rex Harrison had started singing. Yeah, I think we
0: can all agree with that. Um, yeah. So this one, luckily, did did not get any wins, but some big nominations. It got four of them for for picture, director, actor, and for screenplay. And so, I, I think this is it, it. May have been something that springboarded Donat to getting that um that win the next year um and whatnot. So I. I, I guess that that's another, maybe that bumps it down a star just for that alone. But um, yeah, it's interesting. Any, any final thoughts on the sizzle or are we just done with this one?
1: All right. <laughs> I, 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 like I said, I'm trying to watch all these Ross and Russell movies for the year. How dare you?
0: <laughs> all right.
2: Well, our next
0: film uh, is going to be taken away by John. So go ahead and take us away there.
2: Yeah, so um this is Four Daughters, uh which is a Warner Brothers film directed by Michael Curtiz who was clearly busy in 1938. Uh and it's the story of the Lemp sisters. Uh their names are Anne, Kay, Thea and Emma. Uh three of whom were played by real-life sisters Lola, Rosemary and Priscilla Lane and they're joined by Gail Page who was apparently an honorary Lane sister for this movie. Uh, They are in a musical family conducted um, by their father, uh, Adam, played by Claude Rains. At the beginning of the film, Thea is trying to marry a wealthy young bachelor, and this kind of sets the stage for the remainder of the film as a slew of suitors come into the house trying to court the Lemp sisters. The primary focus of the film falls on something of a love square between Anne, Emma, and two young men uh, of different backgrounds and beliefs. Felix, who's this sort of boy next door, promising musician, and his friend Mickey, a vagabond conductor played by John Garfield, both of the, in his film debut, uh, both of the men seem to be in love with Anne, but Emma is madly in love with Felix, and Anne simply wants her sister to be happy. So you can see, uh, imagine the results uh, in several failed romantic pairings from some of the different couples before the film sorts itself out, not for the better of everyone, um, but I won't get into that because that's a little spoilery. Overall, this is one I struggled with. I'm not going to lie. This is, this was not a movie that I was feeling. Uh, I really liked the direction the movie was taking initially as it did feel like a a rom-com. And I thought the sisters had a solid chemistry, though Rosemary was my favorite and she's the one who gets the least screen time. But as the movie went on, I just wasn't into it. I thought Priscilla Lane's choices with Anne were kind of sporadic. Uh, Sometimes it felt like she was playing her as a schoolgirl, sometimes as an adult woman. And it just, there was not a lot of consistency in her work. And it definitely takes some dark turns toward the end without necessarily feeling like the movie's script is uh, encountering those turns. That said, I love John Garfield in this movie. Uh, this is the movie that made him a star. He was Oscar nominated for it. And I get it. He is so naturalistic. You can see like Brando and James Dean clearly watch this movie at some point. And the scene where he comes out in the piano and plays the piano when he introduces it is sexy. Yeah, John Garfield is sexy. I'm, I'm, I'm putting that on the record right now. Uh, and so it's a in a way that you wouldn't expect for a movie from 1938. So uh pro john garfield down on four daughters
0: i have to say i'm looking at the uh, imdb page here and apparently warner archives agrees with you because when they released like this archive collection on vhs or something it's just a picture of john garfield on the cover
2: so (laughs) i mean yeah warner archives and i were like this (laughs) yeah so the first 20 minutes of
0: this movie i was in you know, kind of like you were saying, I, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, I, it starts and yeah, it, it's comedic, it's funny. My guy, Claude Reigns comes in and he's got some funny bits in the beginning. I actually, I actually do think Claude Reigns is really good in this movie. I'm just going to throw it out there. Maybe I'm just really biased, but I think he provides um, kind of like Garfield, um, kind of a nice bright spot for the film as well. Um, but I have two major issues with this movie. One is that, as it starts out, it seems like we're going to get a really interesting, like almost little women esque picture of these, these four siblings and their different quirks and what they each like because they do seem different. Um, it doesn't take that path. The whole plot of the movie is well, who are they going to end up with? You know, who, who, Who's the guy? Who's the guy? They're gonna, that, that's the entire point of the movie after that. Um, and so that took a turn for the worst. The second thing is that this movie should have been called like two daughters. Oh. And then there's a, there's those others too, as well, you know? And so, cause this movie gets so heavily focused on, Anne, you know, Priscilla Lane and um, who's the, I, I think the other one was Emma, Gail Page's character. The other one it kind of focuses on yep. because they are the two that are really going after John Garfield's character, as well as Jeffrey Lynn's character. And so it just, the, the movie like almost legitimately forgets about the other two. In fact, it like sends them away <laughs> basically, or at least one of them away and like they're gone now. So we don't have to worry about them. And so you have this movie that's literally called four daughters. Maybe I'm at fault for going and expecting something different, but when you set me up like that in the first 20 minutes and then you know, zigzag in play a completely different direction, it, it just doesn't work out very well. And so there are moments that I, I do enjoy some degree, like like the picnic was kind of a nice little sidestep moments, you know, where, where Claude Rains gets to work. And um, like you said, Garfield definitely has his moments um, when it focuses on his character a little bit more and whatnot. But overall, yeah, it, it just takes a, a complete, it, it takes the wrong direction. I think it's a movie that really could have been fascinating. Maybe could have been a little bit of a ripoff of Little Women in some way, only, you know, for really wealthy people in this case. But, um, it, it doesn't go that way at all.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I forgot most of this movie as <laughs> as one would. I, I knew going into this, there would only be like five of these that I actually cared about, and this is not one of them. I thought it was, go- look, okay, so I think the Wikipedia article said this is a musical. It, it's nowhere near a musical i i was expecting full on like i love him he's my man no they don't do any of that it is set up like it's going to be a comedy like a laugh out loud situation i i didn't laugh once claude rains yes very good in this also may robson is the aunt love mm-hmm. her she's really good in this everything else i don't care about I don't have much to say except I was disappointed because I was led to believe this was going to be something else. I think the only fun thing that I could say about it is what I texted Brett after I watched it. If Brett remembers, Mm, (laughs) no, no, what was it? It was basically four daughters, one cup. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Look, we already get the expletive on iTunes, so why not? Yeah. Yeah. But. I don't know. It's, it's another forgettable movie.
0: Yeah, you are you you pointed out one of my biggest soapbox issues in the world of cinema, and that is like a misunderstanding of the difference between a musical and a film about musicians that has music in it. This is 100% the latter. Yeah, I look at it now, American musical drama film like no, this is absolutely not a musical whatsoever so this is,
1: I mean you know what that probably be much much better as a musical too if they're singing about the men that they love or you know vice versa the women that they love other than that it ugh. yeah so there. yeah um
0: John do you want to go over um what this one was nominated for
2: Yes. So it was, um, it won zero w- awards, um, which is probably for the best though. Like I said, I love the John Garfield. Uh, but the it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director uh, for Michael Curtiz, one of two nominations he got for Best Director that year. Um, best Supporting Actor for John Garfield, Best Screenplay and Best Sound Recording. And it also inspired two sequels. So Four Wives and Four Mothers. If you are curious about uh, going further into the Four Daughters canon <laughs> I did see that as I was like reading through it I'm like ah I'm good
0: I'm good <laughs> we'll, we'll stop it here so
1: that's an interesting slate of uh, best director nominees this year yeah I I in was terms, thinking about that too not like in terms of the person but the movies It's
2: yeah they did not pick the right ones from this <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, you have a lot, a large connection of like collection of like really great directors here, and for a lot of them, not quite their best work. So, definitely the case with Curtis. All right, so I'm really excited to introduce our next film, and that is Grand Illusion. Actually, don't know. I think it's technically the Grand Illusion. You know, by the way, it's written in French, but I, I constantly see it as Grand Illusion. So. You know whatever way you prefer there, but this is basically the story of prisoners of war in World War One. It is a French film. Like I said, this was the first film, you know, primarily not in the English language, to be nominated for Best Picture. And so, it follows two French soldiers played by Jean Gaban and um, Pierre Fresnay, and they are basically they're shot down during like a routine flights over German territory um, by german soldiers and taken to a pow camp and so a lot of the movie is them kind of connecting with other prisoners of war in that camp and um another camp that they're actually moved to um mostly trying to escape but you know that that doesn't make up the whole plot while they are slowly trying to like develop these escape plans and get out of these camps it really gets into different kind of different topic areas about the nature of war itself um which is re- what I really love about this film. Um, this was part of like the French poetic realism movement, which I kind of did a little bit of a dive into earlier th- this year. And I think it's just absolutely beautiful and fascinating. Um, it was directed by Jean Renoir. Um, so really famous French or, or big French director from that time. And I, I think the movie is, is just flat out fantastic. I first watched this actually only probably six or seven months ago as i was kind of doing that deep dive and it was one of those where, like right when i finished it i was honestly kind of like this might be a masterpiece um just because i think as a war film it goes in directions that we need to get more often you can make an argument that it's anti-war i think that's always kind of a, a really tough ground to, to look at especially when it's presenting particular views but it's really interesting how it works in some of the characters. Um, There's one played by Eric von Stroheim, who is actually one of the big German officers. He plays a fascinating role in the film because he really connects with Fresnay's character because they are both like aristocrats in society. So in in times of non-war, they are two people who would really get along. They have discussions about this. Meanwhile, you've got someone like Jean Gabin's character or Gabin's character who. Um, was was basically a mechanic, you know, a a lower class and so working class. And so you've got those class disparities and how that affects how they think about war um, and the necessity of war. You've got this really interesting conversation throughout the film of the ethics of war. And if that is something that even exists in wartime. And once again, the more aristocratic folks think very differently than the folks from like the working class. And so, um, I think it's terrific. I, I think it's well shot at beautiful black and white cinematography. It kind of traverses to different areas as it goes along. Um, and John Gabin, I, he is one of just the greatest actors I've seen during this period. I, I watched, he was like the face of the poetic realism movement for a lot of movies. And I think he's terrific in pretty much everything he does. He just has that sort of demeanor about him that is very low key but really displays emotion in really effective ways. Um, and his character was just just a, a great protagonist to follow along with in this journey. And so for a war film, one of the most like philosophical and interesting that you're probably going to find. And I think it's just terrific.
1: Yeah, I really love this. Um, I saw it a few years ago, loved it then, and I still love it. I think the most thing that gets to me is the relationship between um von stroheim's character and the other french officer and they're pretty much equal in his mind and the whole t- like this whole touring around the castle thing is so just like nonchalant like they're prisoners of war but they're getting the like you know royal My hotel statement here of like here's this beautiful castle that you're going to be a prisoner in so we hope you enjoy it sorry we couldn't get you a better room or anything So um, but a lot of I was getting a lot of uh, great escape vibes in this, too, especially from the first half of the film when they're actually in like the prison camp. They're trying to escape under the ground. uh, Excuse me. So there's probably a lot of inspiration there that the great escape got from this. I think anyway, I don't know for sure, but maybe. But it is a I mean, it is a great, great film. Um, it's not one that even if you don't understand the subtext of it all, you really have to know what's going on just because the plot of it is pretty damn exciting. The characters are fun. They're, they're fun. They're moody. I'd love Eric von Stroheim in this too. And, and that's just naturally me loving him from sunset Boulevard. I mean, the mm-hmm. man is lovable, even if he is on you know, the wrong side, but whatever. Um, but yeah. And this is on the criterion channel if anybody has the chance to see it. And it was also the first ever Criterion there ever was. So this is the granddad of the Criterions. It's out of print. They really need to do a a re-release really badly. That's like the weirdest shit ever, that it is out of print and there's not a Blu-ray copy anywhere Mm -hmm. of this, Criterion-wise. I mean, there might be over Region 2 somewhere, but...
0: If they did that, I would... Like, I normally, like, wait for sales. No, if they did that for this movie, I would go day spend that $40 and get that Blu-ray for this one. Same.
2: yeah I loved I loved this movie um I I'd only seen Rules of the Game was the only other Renoir film so I didn't know a lot about his style other than that um but I was really um moved by it I thought I I, I felt like it did toe that line Brett like you said with between anti-war but it, it does feel like it, it veers into that that territory and so I I thought it was a really nuanced viewpoint especially considering you know we were 20 years after World War One, but clearly on the precipice of World War II and sort of Jean Renoir seeing that on the front lines from that perspective. Um, like both of you, I really loved the the Fresnay and von Stroheim relationship. I thought it was fascinating to and really well scripted. To the dialogue there is really strong. Yeah. Uh, and then the the Marseillais film, which I, a scene which I didn't know was happening, and is clearly like there's no way Casablanca didn't see that um, yeah. scene and borrow from it. Um, and then just in general, there was, there was a a bit of that celluloid closet running through this little bit. There's a, uh, the scene where the, the, the man dresses, uh, puts on a dress in the film. And, uh, I, I, I I was surprised that made it past censors at the time, but it's a really, it's a fascinating scene because it doesn't play the way you would expect a film from 1938 to, to play that.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the scene that like influenced Casablanca. Cause yeah, you're right. There's no way like it absolutely influenced that movie. And that, I think that's part of the reason I loved it so much. And like, it was an immediate five-star film for me the minute I saw it, because one, I I love Casablanca, but I think they are kind of similar in some ways, because, you know, at, at at their they're both war films, but they approach it so much differently than a lot of war films do um, and get down to the characters and whatnot. And it all just works so well. I, it's a prisoner of war film that, but I, I really, for me, it's not like a super depressing watch the entire time. You know, you get to watch the interactions between different prisoners and kind of the friendships they build. Um, and and it doesn't like, you know, dampen the, the fact that they are prisoners of war either. And so it kind of really has that balance, um, of what that looks like as well.
2: They're both also urgent war films. I mean, Casablanca was made during World War II. This film is made when clearly World War II is about to break out and, um, and the fascist movement movement is starting to rise in in Europe. And so they both have that sort of urgency around the message that they're bringing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you think about especially in France where like, you know, U.S. audiences were not Going to be quite as in tune with that as as the french were you know with like the Vichy government and they were just it was right at their doorstep so um that's really fascinating too
1: there's also um the character lieutenant rosenthal i noticed this uh at the very end when they are walking away and he brings up the fact that he's jewish which i mean it's in the whole yeah. film obviously. but just thinking about the time that this is made in of 1938 and what 1939 World War II would officially start. And it's like, ooh, what is this character now going to experience? He became a prisoner of war. If he does survive his journey back home, what's going to happen now? Mm -hmm. Will he make it this far? What is this character going to be doing in one more year?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So like you guys said, it's basically, you know, we're on the cusp of another war. Fascism is coming. But yeah, it's it's not going to be good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, this actually was only nominated for Best Picture that year, so it's it's one of those rare films that only got the one nomination in Best Picture. Um, I'm glad I am glad it got it, but at the same time, it's it's a little bit it's difficult that it, it didn't get more because um, I think it deserved
1: a lot more. Um, it's great d- that it got it though, because right, it's yeah, unique to see it too this early on.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and this is still it's about a decade removed from when they do start introducing the honorary award that would soon become you know what is now best international feature film so
2: you Do know we didn't even have you know there. how long it would take before another um language not or film not in English is it is it Z is next I think it is Z. I believe so which is 69. Right. Exactly. So 30 some years later.
0: Yeah and I think there's been like um I saw the number earlier, but it's still it's still not many at all. Um and so it really does kind of hold that really interesting place in the history of being the first and being really ahead of its time in that way too.
1: I want to say like, we haven't even hit 10 for that. I I think it's something like that. I want to say it was right
0: around nine or 10, maybe 11. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but yeah. Um, So yeah, great film worth checking out. um, Especially if you, if you know, introduction to kind of that era of French film, I think it's a great one to check out for that as well. Um, any final thoughts on this great one before we move on to our next one
1: uh, I found actually the list of best picture nominees.
0: oh perfect
1: can I read them really quick yeah go for it alright so there are 13 I feel weird 13. because a okay. couple that we've actually spoken about on here okay so Grand Illusion and then it would be 1969 with Z and then the Emigrants which we have talked about mm-hmm. Rise and Whispers, Il Postino, Life is Beautiful, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Letters from Iwo Jima, Babel, technically, even, well, okay. Amor, Roma, of course, Parasite. Wikipedia says Minari. Sure. But... I guess you're talking not in the English
0: language specifically, but it, I'm obviously that, that's an American production, so.
1: Right, so Minari and Babel are kind of like exceptions almost. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, as you're reading that list, like, how many of those were from 2000 and 2010? You know, over half, I, it sounded like. So, God, it took a long time to really, that to be minimum, minimally normalized to a degree, so.
2: You miss a lot of big, big name directors there. Like, Fellini never gets Fellini. anything. <sighs> Foe never gets anything. Kurosawa never gets anything. Yikes, wow. All right, well, Christian,
0: I believe you have our next film and we may have a, a slightly different tone here, but go ahead and take us away with our next one.
1: Oh God. Okay. Our next movie is Jezebel directed by William Wyler. The movie is about a Southern belle Blanche Devereaux. She lives in a nice house with her roommates in Miami, Florida. And thank you. Cause I see John is laughing and Brett is like, what? <laughs> That would have made
2: it a better movie.
1: Would indeed. No, so this Jezebel is though based in the South in Nolens, and she's played by Betty Davis. Let me make sure I get a name right. I tell you, i don't really care. Julie Mars. Julie Morrison and she is a free-spirited woman. She's very vain, super vain, almost like a Scarlett O'Hara. Huh? Interesting. But she has a beau played by Henry Fonda, the great Henry Fonda. And she loses him because she's kind of an ignorant asshole herself. And the whole movie is basically her wanting to get him back doing Southern Belle type things. Faye Banter is also in this. She has a great line about, you know, what a Jezebel is. We also have George Brent, who is in this. Um, But I don't really like this movie at all. I've never liked this movie. In fact, I hate this movie so very much. There's a whole scene which Brett texts me about where she sings with slaves and it's so uncomfortable. But honest to God, it would have been a better movie if it was about Blanche Devereaux from the Golden Girls, the OG Jezebel. I'm sorry if I have nothing more to say about this, except it is a hot piece of trash. And it was such a moment for Betty Davis too. This is her second win. And it's also coming a year before Gone with the Wind, which would be again about another Southern Belle, a little bit more dramatic. And I'm a fan of Gone with the Wind. I know it has a lot of issues and a lot of problems today. Yes. But Scarlett O'Hara, she could she could lick this girl any day, any day. So, um, yeah.
2: John, feel free to go ahead.
1: All right, I'll go.
2: Um, Yeah, this is, this was the second time I'd I'd seen this film. I had not seen this in a while. I was probably a teenager the last time I saw it. And so I remembered very little about this movie. I, I, Betty Davis, I think is very good in the movie. And I think Faye Bainter is as well. So that elevates it. I don't hate the movie, but it's not a movie that I enjoy. Um, I think the, the politics of it are really problematic that I had written down Christian, that same scene was just really uncomfortable. Uh, And uh, overall, though, uh, I I liked Betty Davis in this film. I liked Faye Bainter in the film, but I did not like Henry Fonda in this movie. And I don't know that I've ever said that sentence before. Uh, You've got like Betty Davis doing this like really intense Southern accent and Henry Fonda sounding like he's from Lincoln, Nebraska. And there's just no, there's no, he's not even trying there. And uh, so they don't, it's weird because you think Henry Fonda, this is going to be great. But no, he is miscast in this movie. But I I love Betty and I, uh, in this, uh, she's great in everything. But uh, I think she, I don't think she necessarily, we'll get into that, you know, the next episode. But I don't know that I'll necessarily give her the Oscar, but I she'd be in the running for me um and it kicked off a really great run for her With, i mean five nominations in a row but no i i the overall the film it's it's gone with the wind but if like on i don't
1: know like diet gone with the wind but yeah i one time got flack for saying that on a letterbox review and somebody was like this is written before gone with the wind like yeah okay but when you have literally gone with the wind starting production most likely during this with how long it fucking took for that and everybody knows what gone with the wind is which one are they going to compare which one is probably going to be the better of the two again they both have their similar issues but which one turns out to be the epic of all epics
2: Agreed. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's clearly, yeah, it's, it's impossible not to, and weirdly I saw this movie initially before I saw Gone with the wind somehow uh, back in the day. Uh, yeah. And so I'd completely forgotten how similar they were because it kind of just falls into the shadow.
0: Yeah. Um, I'll start with Betty Davis because I agree. I think she is really good in this movie. I, I think this is one of those examples of those movies that, I think it's a bad movie, but it has a really good performance, and I think that's totally fair to say for Betty Davis here. Um, Do I wish that she had maybe traded that Oscar for something like The Little Foxes or All About Eve or, of course, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yeah, absolutely. But that's that's not the way it works. So,
1: the Little Foxes.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's been a while, but I I saw it in college actually, but. But it is, um, it's, it is a really good performance. I think she, she carries it from being just a a totally monstrously awful film to being a a bad film, you know, I, it kind of works in those levels. So she's definitely the reason to watch, um, and kind of interesting to see her, you know, get that win and then had just won in 19, um, for 1935 and would have so many nominations afterwards but um i think yeah i just the film obviously like you have both said i totally agree it is like gone with the wind light and i didn't know that going in. i didn't even know about the comparisons that like as i was watching i was like oh my god this is like a lot like gone with the wind including with the the representation of the the slave characters um as you have both mentioned so um but no i i think this is ultimately just one of the most finger wagging movies I've ever seen it's as the title might suggest like you know you're I speaking of Kathy Bates you know, you're a godless Jezebel um and so that's kind of the the path the movie takes like just grinds it into your face like first she's showing up to the ball and she's wearing the red dress instead of the virginal white and that's a problem and then we have this like, You know, we're you know she's leading them in on, and she is the reason they go to duel. And like, it's one of those things where I think we we can address that. This this film was from 1938, so obviously the standards would be a little bit different today. But some of that, you you just watch it, and being from where we are, it doesn't connect. You know, it just doesn't work. And I think you know part of it's like you know. These men dueled over you and you caused one of them to be dead. And we're not talking about why these men sell this little itty bitty conflict by going to shoot each other, you know? And so the plot just kind of works in really weird ways for me. Um, rest of that and otherwise. And so, yeah, Betty Davis is the reason to watch. Um, Henry Fonda, I, I always like get something from him just because he has the iconic voice. But overall, I think he seems a little bit starstruck. In this
1: movie, this is super weird to like defend Gone with the Wind in this situation, but like, you know, also it's um the backstory to all of this where Betty and William Wyler shacked up, and that's a whole, yeah, that's a whole scandalous thing. But I've also always heard that like uh, Jane Fonda was approached by Betty once and she was like, I tried to sleep with your father, but you were born. Because Jane Fonda was born like when this movie was being made. So thanks, Jane, I guess. (laughs)
0: Wow. Yeah, uh, Christian, do you want to go over what this was, what this won and what it was nominated for?
1: Yeah, so it only won two things. It won for Betty Davis actress and then Faye Bainter for supporting actress. And then it was nominated for three additional things. Best picture, cinematography and music scoring. And my Golden Girls reference is just Blanche in general. She is Jezebel.
0: Amazing. All right. Well, any final thoughts on Jezebel before we move on? No, you should watch the Golden Girls instead. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, John, I believe you have our next film. So feel free to take us away there.
2: All right, so our next movie is Pygmalion, directed by Anthony Asquith and Leslie Howard. And it is the story of Henry Higgins, a language scholar played by Leslie Howard, uh, who meets a young Cockney flower girl named Eliza Doolittle, played by Wendy Hiller in the film. Uh, and takes on a bet, he takes on a bet with his friend Colonel Pickering to transform Eliza into a proper young lady. Henry is mean to Eliza throughout the film, relentlessly training her day and night, but they're eventually successful. Eliza is transformed into a proper lady, one who could fool one of Henry's rivals at a party into thinking that Eliza is in fact a secret princess. At this point, the bet is over, though Eliza has been transformed, and while Henry is ready to move on from the bet, she wants something more, and we get to see how the dynamics between the two change as she adjusts to life where she's unable to simply return to being a flower girl if this movie is sounding familiar this is not uh, this is not a fake out this is in fact the plot of my fair lady which is the ins- uh this film was the inspiration for 26 years later this was my first interaction with pygmalion i had seen my fair lady many times uh and so i hadn't realized how really similar the two films were uh there are lines lifted wholesale from this movie that are actually transformed into actual numbers in my fair lady the most famous being the rain in Spain. Uh, I really enjoyed Pygmalion. I thought it was really tightly scripted and I thought Wendy Hiller was amazing in the uh, in the lead role. Uh, I thought she took a really thoughtful approach to the role, especially as the movie continues and Eliza has this educational reawakening. I, it felt very um, feminist and I, I think she found she found layers in it that I wasn't expecting a film from 1938 to really focus on and I thought that was really amazing and basically because of her performance it's not necessarily in the script um and she was Oscar nominated and I was really curious to hear your thoughts as well um as I'm not super familiar with Wendy Hiller's work other than what she won the Oscar for for Separate Tables so I was impressed
1: um yeah I've only actually seen her in this and Separate Tables as well but she is really good in this and I actually think that she's And I hate comparing this, of course, to My Fair Lady because they're two different things. Obviously, they're lifted from the same inspiration. But her Eliza and the My Fair Lady Eliza are two different things entirely. She's a much more stronger, I ain't taking no fucking crap from you, Higgins, in this one than anything. And Leslie Howard, I actually like him in this a lot. But reading the fun facts and knowing that Charles Lawton was approached for this, I'm like, oh my God, that also would have been like super cool. Because Charles Lawton's just amazing as well. But Leslie Howard is also very good. It's Wendy Hiller, though, who, like, carries this thing. Is brilliant in it when she's Cockney Eliza versus, you know, the Fair Lady Eliza. Um, But no, it's, I really like this one, too. And I didn't think I would, only because we're just coming off of My Fair Lady. And I do like that one. It does have issues, which are presented in this, obviously, since this is the original thing um, from Shaw. But I don't know. Maybe it's because there's no music in this, and this is a straightforward play. You get to the point of everything that I really appreciated this, and I really liked it. And I do like that Leslie Howard, I guess, is directing or co-directing himself in this, so he's able to bring up you know his own interpretation of it.
0: Yeah, um, I agree. I was pretty shocked by this one. I will totally admit I went in expecting not to like it because you know we 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 actually talked about My Fair Lady two episodes ago. And um Toby was on that episode with us. And I, you know, Toby and Christian really, really liked that movie, really love it. I was like borderline, like I like it, but you know, I, I had a lot of issues with it. So I was just thinking, oh, the original source material, it's not gonna have the vibrancy. And I really liked it. It's it's really, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Christian, of why I liked it, and it's because you know, Eliza is different here. Her, her position, um, is more felt, you know, and kind of the, the sense of like emotional power that she kind of has in that relationship is much more spelled out here. Um, and so you still got this, this story of this, this guy who just treats her awful. And this whole bet is just kind of atrocious in a sense but I think the film is just so aware of that um, and really kind of hits like the problems with that and really delivers that in the end of the film, you know, and kind of twists that on that itself. Um, and like you said, Christian, it, it's hard to not constantly compare it to my fair lady. Um, you know, that's, I think that's something that I, it's just naturally going to happen, especially with watching them two both so close together. But um, I did really enjoy this one quite a bit more. And um kind of the way it was all constructed. Um, I, I think the acting, once again, is terrific. I completely agree with the praise for Wendy Hiller. Um, and I was not familiar with her going into this. So um, kind of an introduction for me. And of course, Leslie Howard, you know, another Gone with the Wind connection there. But um, I think he's really strong here as well. Um, and kind of a little more toned down and just really comes off as the character he's meant to come off as. You know, it's really aristocratic, full of himself type of guy um and it makes sense that he would play that though i agree that the lot that that is enticing so yeah the most surprising film of this lineup for me personally definitely near the top in quality of what was offered this year and i i think kind of an actor showcase between those two and also marie lore um who plays mrs higgins and so i thought she would come in from time to time and i really enjoyed her brief bits as well
2: I also liked, um, I can't remember the name of the actor offhand, Wilfred Lawson I, as the Alfred Doolittle role. I, I enjoyed him as well. I, I mean, that's a yeah. great part, but uh, I, I thought he brought something to it. And I I, I I would be more in Christian and Toby's camp on My Fair Lady. I love that movie. And so, uh, yeah, it's hard not to compare the two, but because one is so ingrained in pop culture and in film culture, but it it, it, it is proof that you can have sort of different, remakes that have really different perspectives in the same story and uh i, I liked that about it but yeah I, I also enjoyed Wilfred lawson as well
1: yeah i agree i have to bring up this point has anybody from this group have ever seen a film a film called uh oh my god confessions of a teenage drama queen with Lindsay lohan yes i Thank never you. saw it i remember when it came out but never saw it cool you're out of this conversation <laughs> <laughs> no way. Um, in that, they put on the play of Pygmalion, but they turned it into Eliza Rocks. And I just wanted to bring that up. They don't put on My Fair Lady. They put on strictly Pygmalion and then make it into an OG situation. But oh Look, I had to have you... some sort of modern reference. So see, my
0: introduction to the whole Pygmalion tale is, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the 1964 episode or not, but the Freddie Prince Jr. movie that they're gender-swapping um and remaking this but year she's all that she's all that yeah yeah that was my first introduction to this story and so you can see why i'm a little bit timid on it i think
2: but um yeah it is i don't want to get into spoilery territory but like pretty woman obviously is another one and the yep. ending that the henry character gets progressively less obnoxious towards the end the further you get with these uh, remakes yeah all right um John, do you want to go over what this won and what it was nominated for? Yes, so it was nominated for three, or it was nominated for uh, four Oscars and won one for best screenplay. Uh, It was also nominated for best picture, best actor, Leslie Howard, and best actress, Wendy Hiller. Perfect. So yeah, definitely one
0: worth checking out once again. Um, I think we all agree one of the higher quality ones on the list. Any further thoughts on Pygmalion before our next film? perfect christian i believe you've got this one so take us away here
1: yes okay so our next film is test Pilot, directed by victor fleming and it has clark gable myrna Loy, and as john said earlier spencer tracy is also in this and it is about a test pilot uh, known as jim lane who's played by gable he lands in a kansas farm holla i'm so excited i don't know why but And he meets a young lady there named Ann Barton, played by Myrna Loy. They fall in love. um, But he is then swept back to his job by his friend, Spencer Tracy. His name is Gunnar Morris. Also, Lionel Barrymore is in this. He owns the company, right, that Clark Gable works for. Yeah. And there's some clashes there because Clark likes to go on his own sort of adventures and his own method of flying and gets fired there. But it's mostly about the art of being a pilot and the dangers that come with it. He does have a friend that gets into it, a very serious crash. And um, when he does fall in love with Loy and they do get together, it's her being very fearful of what could come next. Um, unless I blanked on this, I guess the plot of this also is they try to keep him sober. I never really get where he is drunk in this or if sober means something totally different. I think there's like
0: one scene that I can recall where they're all in the room and he, I can't remember if he's like holding something up, but he kind of comes off as a little drunk, but I I saw that too. And I didn't think that was a major, like the alcoholism point. I didn't see that as a major point of the plot either.
1: Right. Okay. Because when it says this on IMDb that they try to keep him sober. And it also said it when I watched it on TCM as their description of it. So I don't know, maybe they do try to keep him sober. Um, But you know, uh, Clark Abel is, Good in this, really great. I think Spencer Tracy is also very good in this. He's a supporting role, and Myrna Loy also very good. I think the technical aspects of this are incredible. A lot of the plane sequences are those like, whoa, how was this made in 1938? Um, that also goes to the sound of it. It's pretty good sound quality of the actual planes. The fin- the big finale, which I don't want to spoil, um, but it does involve Gable and Tracy in the plane, and some shit happens. Is it's good and I've always really liked this film I think I always say I warm up to something even more and I think I warmed up to this one a lot lot more than last time and it is mostly because of the acting in it and the technical stuff on the planes but like Gable, Loy, and Tracy they're all really good my god I um, just have them have a three-way or something in this I don't care I'll say it right now but I love Myrna Loy and I think she's really underappreciated and nobody ever talks about her Everybody talks about Gable and Tracy, but Myrna Loy, is she's a lovely little lady, but yeah, I enjoyed it. And like John said, he's, Spencer Tracy is a little bit more funnier in this. So, and he gets some good moments. I think he's also really good in comedy and also in supporting roles more than he is sometimes in the lead roles too.
0: Yeah, um, I have to agree, you know, starting with the, the technical aspects. I think that is one of the major draws of this movie. Um, I feel somewhat similar, a little more so though, kind of similar to, to Boys Town in that I, I think there's um, some aspects of this where it, it's a little bit, you know, forgettable and like a lot of it, I just wanted to get, I really liked kind of the romance stuff between Gable and Loy early on and they're, they're kind of spending the day at the movie house and at the baseball game, I, I kind of enjoyed their burgeoning romance and I kind of wanted a little bit more of that to kind of build up that relationship the good side of that relationship a little more as it went on. Um, But yeah, the, the, the flying scenes, it kind of reminds me of when we talked about wings and like, just kind of seeing where it went from there to here in a span of about 10 years, they are really impressive. Um, And the ensemble as well. I, Clark Gable, let me just say the last 15 to 20 minutes of this movie, the acting showcases that we get just in that time, really made those performances with me because that's when gable becomes very vulnerable and i think he does really strong work in those scenes that's where myrna Loy has some of her big moments and i agree she's totally underrated we talked about her in the thin man and i i, I love her as well um you know spencer tracy has his big scene which we won't spoil even lionel barrymore comes in at the end there and has a really nice scene for him to kind of deliver some stuff as well and so when you've got that collection of notable like really good actors it leaves the film on a really high note um i don't know i'm kind of interested in movies like this especially like just think about the 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 macho nature like men like this who consistently do these things that are very dangerous and for gable it's in the name of his job it's what he does but the conflicts they face in that and what leads them to maybe reconsider that um it's far from My favorite of what explores that, like, I think of, like, even, like, Chloe Giles, the writer, kind of explores some of those same same themes um, of, like, this person constantly doing something that could kill them for, and trying to explore what motivates that. And so that aspect is really interesting, and the role that Loy plays in that is really interesting
2: as well. I'm afraid to talk, because I'm going to (laughs) be... I know. I look at Christian's face. I can't. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, everything about this movie screams a movie that I would like. Uh, I love Clark Gable. I love Myrna Loy. It has a lot of elements of Westerns. Like there's a little bit of that Western aspect, and Westerns are my, one of my all time favorite genres. Um, but I didn't feel it. It was not, I watched it, and it was the aerial photography is great. And I Spencer Tracy was my favorite part, which is weird because usually I would pick Loy or Gable over the over Tracy in this situation but for me it was the tonal shifts of the film it was hard Mm. to sort of it felt like every other scene it was this is going to be it's going to be a drama and this is going to be a comedy and then it's going to be an action film but it didn't feel consistent to me and so the it I, I want the I wanted one of those stories to be sort of plucked out um, Brett, you mentioned that they didn't show the good side of the relationship very much. I, I wanted more of that. I wanted to see sort of where this was coming, why she why she was in love with this man, um, other than he's Clark Gable and that's what's supposed to happen because it's in the script. It just didn't feel as, it didn't hit me. Uh, it, it, but it, it bothered me because this is the second time I've seen this movie and both times I was like this is going to be a movie I'm going to love and it just didn't click with me the way that I wanted it to. Um, but I I did like Spencer Tracy in it. I feel like there's I feel like he was a little bit in love with Clark Gable's character. Um, that's sort of how I read that um, aspect of it. Um, and so I, I I I I read it that. But he that was my favorite part of it. And it's weird that a movie that stars Clark Gable and Myrna Loy, who are two of my favorites, uh, is not a movie that I love.
0: No, that, I, I think you make a really good point at the tonal shifts. And like we said, that that romance, because I, I feel the same way. That's what keeps it from being like an overwhelmingly really positive film for me. And like, I enjoyed it, you know, is that I it, we see some of the good stuff early on, but even that's a little bit jaded. And then it's like conflict, conflict, conflict. And so
1: just a little bit more time to breathe would have been nice here and there. Imagine if this was like a screwball comedy or something. <laughs> Where, or like he meets Myrna Loy and she happens to also be a pilot and they do zany zany things and then suddenly drama
2: Can we like get a time machine to retroactively green light that because that that's what I want <laughs> that's the movie I want <laughs> yeah.
0: oh yes uh Christian do you want to go over what this was nominated for
1: Yes. Okay. So it didn't win anything, but it was nominated for three things, including Best Picture, Original Story, and Film Editing. And honestly, if there was a special effects award mm-hmm. for the, I mean, yeah, yeah, it would have won it, hands down. Didn't? It? Yeah, special effects happened the next year though. With the rains came. Yep. The rains came. Don't get me started on that one. Welcome <laughs> to our thirty-nine
0: episode. And it's interesting, Victor Fleming, too, um, directing this, kind of like the the large-scale special effects driven film and then going on to do, um, you know, have Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz both come out the next year. So, all right. So we have now approached our 10th film and our Best Picture winner of this year. Christian, would you like to take us away here?
1: Yes. All right. So the Oscar goes to You Can't Take It With You, directed by Frank Capra. Now, this is the story about a group of kids who encounter a space alien that they only commonly refer to as It. And they realize that It lives in the sewers and they can't take It with them. <laughs> Was that planned or did you just like all of a sudden dive into that? I've been thinking about it today. If I <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, oh, I I like that one. Okay. Anyway, you can't take it with you is uh, based on a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning play by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart, and it is about two families. The first family we'll get into is the Kirby family, led by Anthony Kirby, who is a pretty hoity-toity Wall Street type investor, and he wants to build a sort of a government. What does it say here? Government-sanctioned munitions monopoly in a neighborhood by a competitor, and. He's trying to get everybody to move out of the neighborhood, but there's one house that is resistant. That is when we go into Grandpa Vanderhoff, who is played again by Lionel Barrymore. He had himself a pretty decent year here. And he is the sort of patriarch of this house that doesn't want to move. And in the house is him and his family, a bunch of eccentric characters. And by eccentric characters, I mean eccentric characters. Everything from dancing ballerina to fireworks in the basement, Uh, I believe there's a crow, the standard Frank Capra crow that you see in a lot of his films, which is lovely. I I like that damn crow. I don't know. But um, also involved is Kirby's son, Tony, played by James Stewart. This is sort of when he would shoot to stardom, really. I know he has a few films before this, but this is the one that put him on the map. And the next year, he, you know, international fame. And Tony is in love with Alice Sycamore, Gene Arthur, who is the granddaughter of Lionel Barrymore. I know there's a lot of characters here, but um, but they fall in love, and the circumstances surrounding their families lead to sort of an interaction together with the two merging families, and a lot of shenanigans happen that don't look good for the Kirby. Uh, the Kirby family doesn't see this family as much like them, since they're not you know, rich and posh and everything, and just a lot of mishaps and misadventure. But at the heart of it, it is about family. And Lionel Barrymore is just phenomenal in this, I think. I really love him. I mean, we really haven't discussed him much. But when he does do things, like this is, I think this is one of the first best pictures that we've talked about. Because he has this and he also has Grand Hotel, which we'll someday talk about. But uh, he's really good in this. James Stewart is great. Jean Arthur, which I know that Brett is a real big fan of hers, is lovely. And I will also say this, that she looks just, or Leslie Mann Reminds me a lot of Gene Arthur. Thank you. Yeah. John is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the only person who's ever agreed with that. So thank you. Make me feel good. No, no, I see that. <laughs> yes, but it's it's a very fun film, I must say. And it's that Capra-esque feeling of joy. There's joy, there's love, there's drama in it. It's it's all bundled into one packaged film and it's it's fucking enjoyable to watch. I'm sorry. And it's a good winner, too, I must say. Cause in the 30s, you have a lot of drama movies. The year before this, we have a little movie called The Life of Emil Zola, which is terrible and shitty, and I hate it so much. And then you have this, and it's like lighthearted feelings. But yes, family shenanigans. I love it. Go.
2: Do you want me to go here, bro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I I had not seen this movie in like 20 years. And so this was a fun revisit because it's Uh, uh, as Christian said like it's not it's not a movie necessarily that you like it's not one of the movies that you instantly name check as a best picture winner like i uh, similar to life of meal you can't really name check that one as well but it's it's a movie i thought it was really great Uh, i hadn't remembered it being this good uh and i loved i loved the plot of it Because there's very rarely movies, like classic or otherwise, that puts a value on leisure time, rather than just trying to make it quantify it and forcing you to sort of turn your pleasure into something to make money from. It's really focusing on just what brings you joy and... I thought that was really a beautiful message from the film and the cast is really strong. Like everyone, there's no weak link in this. I don't know if I have a standout from this, but I just want to call out like Spring Byington is also really good in this and Miller, um, is the the bad dancer. Obviously, Ann Miller is a great dancer in real life. And so I, I like that juxtaposition that like she's supposed to be bad because I, I I had completely forgotten that aspect of the film. And I was like, oh, darn, that means we're not gonna get a musical number. Uh, but uh, that might be the only real fault I have with you, can't take it with you, is that there's no musical number for Ann Miller. Otherwise, this is great. Uh, it's a great movie. And uh, it's also Edward Arnold is in this film uh, who plays the sort of the bad guy and he was having a really rough year in terms of uh, he had been called box office poison in The Hollywood Reporter. And um, he had been listed by the theatrical release uh, as someone that they didn't want to have in films anymore. So this had to have been nice retribution a few months later that he's in a big hit that wins Best Picture.
0: Yeah, we we agree. This movie is lovely and wonderful. Um, this is the first time I've seen it. And Frank Capra is just His movies do have a sense of sentimentality to them. You know, ones like this, and um, you know, it's a Wonderful Life, and even Mister Smith Goes to Washington, to some degrees, And so, but it's just who does it better—the the the sentimental aspects of movies like this. You know, it it always strikes a chord. Um, Christian, you mentioned the Crow, like showing up in different movies. This also has kind of a um, something that kind of shows up in It's a Wonderful Life later, with like they all the friends come up. I won't say what least this, but putting the money in the bag to help a friend and whatnot. Um, and it, it, it has an impact here as well. Um, but I agree with both of you that I think what really ultimately makes the film shine is that ensemble. Um, Christian, as you were listing off those characters and saying how many there were. I was like I didn't think about that, but I never had trouble with that when I was watching the movie and they're very easy to differentiate. They all have their own little qualities and especially their quirks with that family um and it all works really nicely so
1: i guess in the play there's only like 19 or so characters but in this there's like 153 individual people because you can switch out people and have them as background members but this is like right plus everybody else in the background
0: yeah i mean you got scenes like the ones where they're with all the townsfolk and the, the courtroom and stuff like that where there are a lot of people coming in and whatnot but um yeah, standout, uh, yeah, Lionel Barrymore, I just, I really, you know, Oscar's going to Oscar, but I really don't understand why he wasn't nominated for this movie, because I think he just totally shines, he owns this role, and when I think of Larry, Lionel Barrymore, I think of Mr. Potter, you know, and the, kind of this you know, scummy, evil guy, and this is so warm, and touching, and just a complete 180 from that, and so it, it kind of struck me in that way. Actually, I actually have a, a question about him that we'll get to in a little bit. That I kind of want to put it to the group, but um, you know, everybody works. Like Christian said, I I haven't seen a ton of Gene Arthur's work, but everything I see with her, I just think she's absolutely wonderful. And completely agree with, with the shout out to Sprint Byington. I think she's great as well. Um, completely deserving of her nomination this year um she was the only one from the cast that did get a nomination so um i guess my one my one thing with the film that i wish had been just a little bit different is i wish james stewart's character had been a little bit less spineless at times you know and i get why that that serves the plot and where that comes from but at some point i'm like man show her why you love her you know and it, at times he does but when it really comes down to it i'm like you're leaving me hanging here, but it, it's a very mild concern. I really do love this movie a lot just on this first watch. And I think it flew by, um, didn't for long at all The this cast, you've got a lot of like Capra usuals, obviously multiple films with, with Jimmy Stewart. He did Mr. Smith with Gene Arthur Barrymore. You have, um, HB Warner who played, um, Mr. Gower and it's a wonderful life. So I like seeing him show up at one point. Um, And it's just, it's, it's lovely from start to finish. It's lovely. It's enjoyable. The characters are amazing. I wanted to spend time with this family and just kind of be around them. Um, And it, that it's actually really profound. I think when they're having a conversation between Stuart and Arthur on a park bench, and he kind of makes a statement of like, I, I just, I can't believe like how happy you know you, you can be with so little. You know, my whole life I, I've been around money, 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 and and your family just they, you make it work. You all seem so happy, and so it, it, that's a really profound thought to me, even though it may not seem like it on the surface. Um,
2: but it really stuck out to me as well. Speaking of the the nominations that the film got, I, I was surprised this didn't get nominated for art direction because that was a cool house. Like, yes. Uh, I mean, you got all these little nooks and crannies throughout it and it has a lot of personality and they're, they've nominated less for, um, art direction. And so I I was surprised looking through the the list of what it was nominated for that it didn't have that moment. Yeah. I mean, the, the house is kind of a
0: character in the movie. Um, you know, it's, it's a central, it is a central point of the plot. And so, yeah, that is really surprising and that that's a big snub on their part. Um, Speaking of the Oscars and nominations, this is something I've kind of struggled with as I thought about this film. And I am not a big, like I don't care a whole lot about category fraud. Um, and there's one nomination film, I'm not saying Spring Byington, like she's obviously supporting. But when I'm thinking about personal nominations, I know that Lionel Barrymore is going to be there. And I'm interested to hear what you all think because to me, like on, he seems supporting to me, but at the same time, because I think it, it, it's large, a lot of it is through the lens of Stuart and Arthur and their relationship, but at, he does have possibly the biggest presence in the film as a character. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts um, on, you know, if you think this is more of a, a top tier, like supporting performance, if it's, if he's actually a lead, maybe alongside or on his own, what are your thoughts?
2: I've, think it's a three-lead film. I think Barrymore, Arthur, and Stewart are, are all leads, and the rest of the cast is um, supporting. I, I I tend to be on the, in the category fraud debate, I tend to lean towards being uh, stricter on it, and yeah, having more leads. I think films have lots of leads. The, the, frequently, they'll have two, at least. I think this is a three-lead film,
1: personally. As I start typing up my personal things right now, because the <laughs> Thank you all very much.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I think it's, and I like, I'm literally, like, I've been thinking about this since I watched it, and I'm like, I could see it both ways. But I, yeah, I think you make a good point because I think, I don't know, it's just hard to imagine this movie where Lionel Barrymore isn't an essential,
2: like, big part of it. So. It is partially, I always think, like, it is his story. Like, uh, it's throughout the film, it is really focusing on what his perspective is. And so I think, I yeah, I would la- land towards a three-lead film. I'm I curious, did you, it, were you surprised mm-hmm. that it's Spring Byington that was the one person from this cast that got nominated? It feels like one of those June Squibb or Patricia Clarkson-style nominations where you, they needed to nominate her at some point, so they got it for her, but... You could easily fill that in with, with a number of different other actors in this film, and it would be fine. I, I like that Spring Byington eventually got an Oscar nomination at some point um, right. she's always so good in so many things. But uh, it doesn't, for me, there was no standout in this film. It was just all a solid cast.
1: This is definitely a movie, if we had the SAG Awards at this time, it would win ensemble hands. Down. Yes. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it, it's probably going to win my personal ensemble, but my personals
0: don't count. <laughs> Yeah, I and that's a really good question because on one hand I'm like, and this is a bit of a spoiler for next episode, but like, of you know of the supporting act performances in the film, she's probably who I would go with if we consider Barrymore lead. But at the same time, I am a little bit surprised um, because. Like you said, you could you could fit that in with anybody. I, I, I don't know how they landed on her other than maybe someone like Ann Miller and especially Barrymore or even, you know, Arthur or, or Stewart. You know, um, I on one hand, I'm like, I get it because that's kind of what I would do. On the other hand, I'm like, I'm a bit
2: surprised that's the one they went for. Also, Ann Miller should have gotten an Oscar nomination at some point. Like in my personal awards, not for I'm not going to spoil because we'll get to that in the next episode, but she'd be nominated multiple times for the Oscar, and she never got got it once. I'm a little bitter that they couldn't have just given it two nominations here. Why not? You know, um, yeah, it is. Really, I also really
0: I want to give a shout out to Kalinkov because uh, his his line throughout the film of just like she stinks. I audibly laughed multiple times uh, at some of his stuff and what he does too. So he's kind of a, a nice comic relief in the film as well.
1: Also, Rochester's in this. <laughs> Who we saw in Castle, not Cat Cabin. Yes. Oh my God. Y'all. Yes. How dare you? Eddie Rochester Anderson. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah.
0: If you guys had said Eddie Anderson, I would have got it. But no, I, yeah. I, yeah. Glad he was here as well.
1: Excuse me. He's the only known as Rochester to me.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't know. Makes sense though. Um, yeah. Nice to see him here as well. All right. Well, that is our best picture winner. You can't take it with you. Um, Christian, do you want to go over its wins and it's additional nominations as well?
1: Yes. So it only won two things, best picture and best director for Frank Capra. And it was nominated, like you said, for supporting actress for spring, uh, Biden screenplay, cinematography, sound recording and film editing
0: very nice all right well any further thoughts on
2: that final film before we move on to our rankings here see it it's a fun movie it's a good light see it with your family movie
0: i will also say if you're like like me and want to collect all the best picture winners on like blu-ray this one is i want to say it's like 10 bucks on amazon i went ahead and bought it for this so it's a pretty good deal so All right. So now it is time to go into our rankings of these movies. And so, of course, we've got 10 here. We will go top to bottom, 10 to 1, and see what we come up with. And so I will start us here. Um, Number 10, I've got Jezebel. No surprise there. Number 9, The Citadel. Also no surprise. 8, I have Four Daughters. 7, Alexander's Ragtime Band. 6, Boys Town. 5, Test Pilots. Four, Pygmalion. This is when they start getting really good. Three, I have The Adventures of Robin Hood. Two, You Can't Take It With You. And number one, I have Grand Illusion.
2: All right, let's go to John next. You want to count down yours for us? I will count it down. All right, so at number 10, I have Four Daughters. Number nine, I have Boys Town. Eight, Test Pilot. Seven, The Citadel. Six, Jezebel. Five, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Four, You Can't Take It With You. Three, Pygmalion. Two, Grand Illusion. And my favorite of the year was The Adventurous Robin Hood. Very nice. And Christian, how about you?
1: All right. My number 10 is Jezebel, The Blanche Devereaux Story. Number <laughs> 10 is The Citadel. Number four is Four Daughters. Uh, number seven, Alexander's Ran- Ragtime Band. Number six, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Number five, Boystown. Number four, Test Pilot. Number three, Pygmalion. Number two, You Can't Take It With You. And my winner is Le Grande Illusion.
0: All right. And so as always, we did have an overall ranking by, by Toby. Toby calculated this all for us. And so we've got some ties here. Um, so tied here at the bottom, technically number seven, we have four daughters and Jezebel. Next up, we have the Citadel. Then we have another tie with Boys Town and Alexander's Ragtime Band. Uh, fourth, Test Pilot. And third, yet another tie with Pygmalion and the Adventures of Robin Hood. Number two, You Can't Take It With You. And number one, Grand Illusion between the three of us. And so the big question here, obviously, um, we always ask, you know, what did the, did the academy get it right? Did they get it wrong? I think for me, this is one of those years where I disagree with what the academy picked but i wouldn't necess- necessarily say they got it wrong but i think they picked a really
1: strong best picture winner this year yeah i don't see them picking at this point something like grand illusion no, no. yeah not all and yeah. like i said you can't take it with these very it's very happy we're still in the great depression mode you know good point
2: yeah, we can pretend that like Grand Illusion or Robin Hood might have been an option, but it was probably the Citadel that was going to be winning and you can't take it with you as a much better decision. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah, for sure. And yeah,
0: I mean, something like Grand Illusion, just, just lucky to be nominated, honestly. Um, can't take It's an as honor well. to be here. <laughs> well, very nice. So that there's our thoughts on the nominees from this year, but as always, we have got more to come. And so John will join us once again, as we discuss four more films from 1938 that were not nominated for best picture, but still worth considering. And we will go through those and see our thoughts. And so uh, be sure to tune in for that one. And to those listening, thanks as always um, for your continued listening and uh, rate, review, subscribe on Apple podcasts, wherever you listen, that always helps a bunch. Um, as well as following us on all social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Thanks, as always, to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music um, for all these episodes. And John, thank you to you for joining us for this first episode and really excited to have you back for the next one. Um, Any final thoughts from you, as well as um, anything you want to share that you're doing or where you are on the Internet or anything like that?
2: Yeah. So this is a treat. This is so much fun. Um, I love doing this. Uh, In terms of on the internet, I, you can find my blog at the mini rantings of John. Um, We talk a lot about old movies. So if you're into old movies, uh, then you should come and check it out. Perfect. Thanks for having me. This was really fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being on Christian. Any final thoughts from you as we wrap up this one?
1: none except for i'm excited for the next one too and also you can find me on scenestealers.com. i write movie reviews on there and i'm trying to write a lot more than i did last year i've written so far about uh luca and recently Mm f9 which was (laughs) whoo yeah so that's yeah yeah brett read that review so yeah i've read the review that yeah check out that review once it comes out it's it's a good one so. Oh, it's out it's as yes it's out oh it's out now perfect awesome so yeah check F- that out and we all hear this f9 will probably have made five million billion dollars <laughs> so you can go read my review on it very nice awesome well thanks for tuning in and
0: be sure to connect with us next time